You're going to need two things to participate in the message today. One of them is a Bible. So even if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. And I'd ask you to take it out of the pew holder there and at least hold it. Uh, I'd, this is important to me today. Everybody needs to have a Bible. And uh, you can turn to Ephesians. If you can't find it otherwise, look in the front. There's a table of contents. I think it's around page 1140 something or other. The first person to find it, yell out the page number and we'll all go there together. Okay, who's got it? What is it? 1173. Unless you have a slightly different version, in which case it'll be about three page numbers different than that, okay? Because we have two different uh, printings in the pews, okay? So now you have a Bible. Uh, you need the outline and um, you need a cell phone, okay? So if you brought your cell phone today, uh, put it on silent, but have it where you can reach it, okay? Because we're going to use it before we're done. Now, the Bible that you have in your hand is very interesting because this past week, I don't know if you noticed or heard, but we celebrated a very special uh, anniversary, the 500th anniversary of what's called the Reformation, which began October 31st, 1517 when a 33-year-old priest got radical and posted 99 grievances on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel and his name was Martin Luther and he began a revolution in the Christian church and among other things one of the central parts of that revolution was this idea that everybody should have a Bible that everybody could read a Bible that everybody could understand their Bible if they would read it consistently. Um, prior to that time, and we don't even sort of realize this today, but people didn't really have Bibles available to them. There might have been a Bible at the church. Uh, they would have a pulpit Bible that actually was often chained to the pulpit so nobody could steal it, right? Because they were hard to come by. And uh, maybe uh, if you were particularly wealthy, you might have a, a handwritten, uh, beautiful sort of uh, what I like to call a coffee table Bible. <laughs> Anybody see one of those? Sort of like 35 pounds of, uh, of biblical truth. And uh, nobody ever opens it, but it sure looks good, okay? They had those. Some people did. But the average person, uh, first of all, uh, they couldn't afford a Bible, and secondly, they couldn't get a Bible, and thirdly, even if they could, they couldn't read it because it was only available in Latin. And unless you could read Latin, and most of the common people could not, uh, you couldn't understand the Bible. So there were some rather revolutionary Christians who said we should translate the Bible from Latin or even go further back to the Greek and the Hebrew and uh, bring it into the common language of the place where we live. And so history tells us that there was, there was a whole group of people who did this. There was an Englishman named John Wycliffe. He and a team of scholars started the movement to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. And they, they first translated the Bible into English, which was considered a crime, for which he was arrested severely punished and forced to resign his position in the church. 
But unfortunately, before they could execute him, he died of natural causes. So 40 years after his death, church officials dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered them on the River Swift so no one could find a place to remember him because of the horrible crime of translating the Bible. In Czechoslovakia, a pastor named Jan Hus translated the Bible into Czech, for which he was arrested, tried, and burned at the stake. Perhaps most famously of all was William Tyndall, who took advantage of the modern printing press to create an accessible, up-to-date English language translation of the Bible, which cost him the life of his friends, Thomas Hinton, Thomas Vilney, Richard Bayfield, and eventually his own life. He was strangled and burned at the stake for the crime of translating the Bible and making it available. Which brings me to you and me. How blessed we are. Nine out of ten households in America own at least one Bible. Somewhere between 35% and 49% of us read the Bible on a weekly basis. Two-thirds of us read it now and then. One-third of us almost never. So here's our challenge. It's mine and it's yours. In the typical American church, each pastor, each week, a pastor gets up and takes about half an hour, give or take, to talk about a particular Bible passage. Most often it has at least one verse as its text. As we're doing now, it has half a chapter. As church services uh, gather with nice Christian people, they listen to the talk. <laughs> Sometimes they critique it. Sometimes they enjoy it. Sometimes they don't. Most often they don't remember it more than a day or two and don't check any of the scripture verses on their own, which is insane. Some people died so we could have a Bible we could read. But most of us don't really bother to read it all that often or study it all that much. You know, when I got working with this this week, I thought, how insane is it that in some churches they actually pay the pastor to read the Bible for them? Right? I read the text. I work with it all week. Pastor Shane reads the text. He works with it all week. He gets up. He kind of digests it, puts it in an understandable form, gives it to you, and then you say, eh, liked it, didn't like it, got something, didn't get something, and then you basically ignore it, you know? So here's the change we want. Let's not do that. Right? Let's not do that. Let's actually read our Bible. Is that okay? Are, are we on that page together? Let's read our Bible. Um, every week, as we go through this letter to the Ephesians, uh, we cover about a half a chapter. So if you have read that half chapter, good for you. If you haven't, that's fine too. We're going to go through the middle of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 5 today. And here's my request of everyone here. To honor the memory of William Tyndale, who gave his life so you could read your Bible. Let's spend some time in God's Word. Let's ask Him to speak to us, to me, to you. And watch what He does. <laughs> it could be revolutionary. It could be life-changing. 
Lord, God, I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for my Bible. I thank you for William Tyndale and Jan Hus and others who gave their lives so that I could have one and I could read it and I could understand it. I pray for my friends, my family, this church, that we will take the opportunity you have provided for us and we will read and study and live the bread of life, the word of God. the Holy Bible. Help us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we look at the passage I mentioned a moment ago from the middle of Ephesians chapter 4 to the middle of Ephesians chapter 5, which is all about the difference between darkness and light. And I bet you can guess what he has to say. Darkness, bad, light, Let's try that again. Darkness, bad. Light. <laughs> Darkness is what? And light is? And so get out of the dark and into the light. Amen? All right, let's just go home and do it. All right, let's just go home and do it. Let's get out of the dark and into the light. And it's really cool to me how in this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to his friends in Ephesus takes that theme of darkness and light. And I hope you have your Bible open to that particular passage. And he riffs on it, you know. He kind of plays with it. He gives us a little darkness and a little description, and then he gives a little light and a little description, and then he goes back again, looks at the darkness again, then he looks at the light again, then he looks at the darkness, then he looks at the light, then he brings it on home. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. This is chapter 4, verse 17 and following. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, which is a continual lust for more. Then he goes on later in the passage and says, um, beginning chapter 5, Be imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Then let's skip down to uh, chapter 5, verse 8. I think we probably have this on the screen. For once, for you were once darkness. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say you were in the darkness or of the darkness or around the darkness. He says you were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. I love what Paul's doing, you know. He's reminding everybody that the world is divided between darkness and light, but as Christians and those who are trying to live in the light, we can't start in the dark. 
You know how it is. You, you, you go to church long enough, you start to think that you're something, you know. I'm the light. I'm in the light. I'm not one of those stupid, evil people, you know, those bad guys out there that live in the dark. He says, no, you can't have that attitude because you were once darkness. You were, you were once darkness. Don't be holier than thou. Don't be sitting above and looking down on everybody else. Look inside. Remember your own heart. Remember the darkness you used to live in and how dark it was. And think about how to get out of the dark and stay out of the dark to be transformed and have your life changed. If you want to follow Jesus, step out of the darkness and into the true light of Christ. Isn't there a lot of darkness in the world these days? Division and hatred between people groups, ethnicities, ideologies, political viewpoints. They seem to get deeper and wider and the conversation meaner. More and more of our family and friends and neighbors descending into addiction, chemical addiction, sexual addiction, substances that addict and ruin and destroy. Violence. Violence seems to escalate every week. There's another mass shooting somewhere in our country. Someone else dies because of darkness. And in the midst of an ungodly, violent, and sexually perverse world, Paul writes this letter to his friends at Ephesus who were in a world equally as dark. It says, come on out. Come on out. You may like it in the dark, but it's killing you. You, you may enjoy the dark for a little while. It, it kind of hides some of the evil deeds and evil thoughts in your heart, but it'll eat you up. It'll leave you, you know, wrecked and destroyed, and it will destroy those around you. Once you were in the darkness, but now live in the light. So in the program today, there's an outline. Got more blank spaces than any other outline I've ever produced, I think. So you need a pen and you need to write. We're going to go quick. What does the darkness look like? Well, he gives us a description. Leave the darkness behind, he says. And then what does he list? He lists, first of all, dark thinking. Dark thinking. It still exists, friends. The idea that Human people, human beings are basically on our own, can figure everything else out. Evil is not real. Truth is not ultimate. Morals and ethics are flexible. There are no moral absolutes. It's a rejection, Paul says, of the truth. Well, what's the truth? That God created everything and everyone. That he is a God of love who, des who designed this world and us so we could love him back. And he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and raise from the grave so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have new life. That's the truth. But darkness says, uh, maybe not. There must be some other explanation. Um... Maybe there really isn't a God. Maybe life has no purpose. Maybe we didn't all come from anywhere in particular or have any point. And the more we go down that road, the darker it gets. Dark thinking. Then he talks about dark and ugly words. Um, no, sorry. Dark sensuality. 
is his next point. He talks about debauchery and, and sensuality. You know, is sex a good thing? You bet. <laughs> That's where we all came from, okay? We all in, in, a, in a healthy marriage get to enjoy that part of God's creation. But can sex destroy? Can unbridled sexual appetite lead us down a dark road? It sure can. Where is it leading our world? Abusive sex. Predatory sex. It's in the news almost every day. Addictive sex. Death-defying sex. There's a darkness there. When it comes to sensuality, you can take it to the bank. Self-indulgence leads to self-destruction. Then he talks about greed. Greed and stealing. And he actually connects it to the darkness of sensuality. Because we end up taking, stealing from another person for our own pleasure. You know, someone's innocence, someone's purity is many times taken for someone's sensuality. I want what I want, and I'll take whatever it takes to get it. And that, friends, leads to more and deeper darkness. Then he uses the term dark deception, um, falsehood. Does anybody know that lying is a sin? Have you ever told one? I mean, it's kind of interesting. Uh, scholars and scientists who study, you know, the nature of human nature say that probably the most common sin is lying. Why do we uh, let ourselves away with that? Years ago, I worked with a, with a Christian psychologist who said, well, the reason is because most of us have done things we consider to be worse than lying. So lying to cover up the worst thing is kind of the least thing. So we excuse ourselves. We want to make ourselves look good. We don't want anyone to see the truth, the darkness about us. So we live in a world where deception is all too common. <laughs> they say the average person lies at least twice a day. I don't know who decided that. <laughs> I don't know whether it's really the truth, but it's kind of scary if it is true. And then, and then Paul says there's, a, there's an anger thing. There's an anger thing that gets dark. I know there's anger that's righteous and good. Anger at the, the injustice of the world, you know. But there's also this ugly side. Anybody seen any road rage lately? I live not far off of M15. I see it almost every day. Uh, and then what about the kind of anger that happens in homes? From pushing and shoving to hateful words and profanity. Dads who hit their kids. Mothers who call their children names when they're angry. Friends who swear at each other when they feel like the occasion is right. It's dark. And then he goes on, dark and ugly words. He calls out this thing he calls unwholesome talk. Wow. Unwholesome talk. The darkness of obscenity and coarse joking. And they're all in the wrong place. They're all inappropriate. When was the last time you swore or used a crude or vulgar word to make a point or laughed when someone else did? Paul says that's dark. That'll eat you up. That'll take you down. What did Jesus say about it? You've, heard it? you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say, don't call someone a fool. You can kill someone with evil words. We're almost done with the list of darkness, but it's a scary list, isn't it? 
And the scariest thing of all is that we're on it. He goes on to talk about dark drunkenness. Do not get drunk on wine. Chapter 5, verse 18. Often, critics of those who are abstainers say that in the New Testament, Jesus and the disciples drank wine, and they certainly did. But what they did was vastly different from the current culture of alcohol abuse that we see all around us. There's an enormous price to be paid for people who cannot control how they drink, what they drink, how much they spend, and what they do to others when they drink. It can kill you. And then there's, then there's this last thing in, in 515 where he talks about people who just wander into darkness, dark carelessness. You know, you can go to a dark place as a, as a person in this world, whether attempting to follow Christ or ignoring Christ, just by not being careful, right? Don't be careful about what you watch. Don't be careful about who you hang out with. Don't be careful about who you, who you read or how you treat other people. And you end up in a much darker place than you wanted. Leave the dark. Lord, all right. How do you get into the light and stay out of the dark? Would you like to know? Are you tired of hearing about the darkness? I am. I don't like talking about it that much. But you know, it's right here. It's God's word. So what about the light? How do you get into the light? Well, first of all, what is the light? First, there is the light of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. Chapter 4, verse 21. There is a God who loves us, who created us, who wants us to be in a right relationship with him. And we invite the light of Christ into our lives. Live as children of light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And when he lives in me, he brings light to my life. Amen? Amen. And then he talks about the light of a, of a Christ-like attitude. Put on the new self, he says. So in Christ, I'm not the same old, same old. It's not just me the way I always am with my bad temper and my irritability and my self-indulgence. You know, every once in a while I hear a Christian say, well, that's just the way I am. Well, get over it, right? With Jesus Christ in your life, get past it. Get out of the dark and into the light. I am not the same old, same old. I am a brand new person. And if you have Jesus Christ in your life, you are a new creation. So what does a Christ-like attitude look like? Well, I know one place in the Bible where it's described this way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want to be like that. I want my friends to be like that. I want my family to be like that. And the only way we can be like that is to walk in the light with Christ in our lives. And I, I know I've always thought that on that list, you know, there's lots of pleasant things, love and joy and peace. And then at the end, it gets to the hard stuff, right? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I, I have five grandchildren. Have I ever mentioned my grandchildren? Um, our son has three. They're the older ones. Our daughter has two. They're the younger ones. And of the two younger ones, the oldest is Caden. He's six. And he's learning the fruit of the Spirit from his mom and dad. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what Caden said this week. Self-control is the hardest to have. He's six. 
Self-control is the hardest to have, but it's also the best to have. Amen, Caden. The light of righteousness and holiness. Chapter 4, verse 24, and chapter 5, verse 9. He comes back to this twice. Righteousness means living the right way, right toward God and right toward other people. You know, the first thing is Jesus is our righteousness. When he forgives us and lives in us, he makes us right with God. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Let me try that again. Aren't you glad? Okay, more than four of you are glad, and I'm glad that you're glad. Okay? He is our righteousness, but guess what? He wants to make us righteous, to do the right thing. Do you ever have a choice on a daily basis between right and wrong? Good and bad? Light and dark? With Jesus in you, speaking into your life, you know, speaking through your conscience, giving you the strength, you can choose to do the right thing. Righteousness and holiness. What's holiness? Holiness is not being the morality police for everybody else, right? Holiness is, I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to, did, did anyone notice when I started this message today, I said, Lord, make us more like Jesus when we leave and when we came? Yeah, don't, that's a good prayer every day, right? Make me more like Jesus. Righteousness and holiness. Holiness is loving God and people with a pure heart couple more aspects of the light that Paul mentions in this text. He talks about honest work in chapter 4, verse 28. Sometimes leaving the dark and walking in the light means getting up out of your comfortable chair and doing something good. Working hard at your job. Doing it for the Lord. Has anybody ever heard the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop? What does that mean? <laughs> Well, it means if you're just sitting around waiting for something good to happen, it may not happen, you know? If you're just waiting passively and not engaging with the things God puts right in front of you, you, you might be missing it. You might be in the dark. Keep busy enough to stay out of trouble. Can I get an amen? Keep busy enough to stay out of trouble and use whatever you do to add value. You know, the work that you do, it's more than just a paycheck. You get to add value. You get to bless people. You get to make the world a better place by what you do. Then he talks about the light of kindness. What do you think of when you think of that word? Simple, thoughtful acts. Greeting people with a smile, with a, with a warm tone of voice, expressing joy, enjoying the simple things of life, holding the door, letting someone go ahead, you know, when you're in traffic and somebody stupidly is in the wrong lane and they put their signal on and they want in when you need to go first, what do you do? <laughs> you cut them off. No. <laughs> you, you show the light of kindness, right? Then he talks about the light of forgiveness. Forgiveness, refusing to bear a grudge, being the first to put out your hand, being easy to get along with. And then the capper, the light of love. Love, acting the best in the best interest of others no matter what it costs you. That's love. The gospel in a word is love. Sooner or later, if you're talking about light, you get to love. Jesus, you love people, even people who are hard to love. And so I pray that you will love them through me. 
I, I receive your love and I share your love. And then the light of thanksgiving. Grace and gratitude belong together. Gratitude, grace evokes gratitude. You know, out of our hearts, we're so thankful for everything good in this world, in this life. That's what it is to live in the light. So the final thing on the outline there is to chase light passionately. You know, uh, just a little bit of light dispels the dark. A little bit of light gets rid of the dark. You just need the light to overcome the dark, which is why in chapter 5, verse 14, it says this, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> there it is right there. How do you get out of the dark and into the light? How do you stay out of the dark and stay into the light? Four things. Wake up. Wake up. We can be dead and dark and not even know it. We can be careless about our walk with the Lord and just kind of go along with the crowd. I don't know, did anybody here, is anyone here old enough to remember the the passionate Christian singer named Keith Green. He, he sang in the, in the 70s with sort of this rebel attitude, calling Christians to be their very, very best. And he wrote a song called Asleep in the Light. And it says this, Open up, open up, and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God's calling, and you're the one. But like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Can't you see it's a sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church can't fight because it's asleep in the light. Asleep in the light. Wow. Uh, Keith Green died tragically in a plane crash, but his message and his ministry has continued. Wake up, O sleeper, the Bible says. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you you. Don't be careless. Don't be passive. Get on with your life in Christ and walk in the light. Then step up. He says, be careful how to live, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the use of every opportunity. What does that mean? Well, let's go back through the list of the darkness and the light, right? Let's just look at it. Look at it right there in front of you on the page. The darkness, dark ideas, dark actions, dark addictions, dark um, habits. Are there any of those that are challenges for you these days? 